Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about, uh, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Paul Gould about uh, eternal life and motivation. Like, there's this new critique of uh, at least Christianity, because we talk about eternal life a, a lot. It's kind of a big deal for us. And there's this new critique of the idea of eternal life. And maybe it's not so new, but it's coming up more and more in podcasts that, look, I don't want to live forever. That would take all the meaning and value out of life. How boring would that be? Uh, It's been on popular podcasts. It's been on popular shows like The Good Place. And uh, I want to just combat that, man. That's a really big eternal life is huge for us. It's not everything, but it kind of is. So we're going to get into that. I'm going to be talking with Paul. He just did a fantastic episode on his Udo podcast about it. Uh, before we jump in, I just want to thank all the Patreon patrons, the supporters there. You guys are huge. You guys are like, I love you people so much. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Um, if you've been helped by this, if you think this podcast is beneficial, please consider supporting me on Patreon. Like I've said before, I'm, I'm trying to do this full time. Let's see where this can go. Um, but I need some, some more patrons for that. So please join uh, my team. You can find the link in the description. Another way you can support the podcast is subscribing. Um, That would help you too. see all the new episodes, subscribe, turn on the notification bell. And then this is really helpful for all the audio stuff. If you go to uh, Apple podcasts and you leave me a five-star review and a comment, it would like shoot me up the the ladder. It'd be really helpful to get more people listening. Uh, It's cool stuff, man. I want to promote all the work of the people who come on. So help, help this platform get big so that we can promote them even more, Uh, change the whole conversation, change the way people think about cool stuff. So without further ado, let's bring Paul in. Paul, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Hey, Parker. Good to be with you as always. Um, dude, this is so good. I, I saw you post about this and then I, I listened to it yesterday. So I just had I, I had to jump on it because it's so it's so close to me. Um, not not just as like a shepherd, like I, I disciple people and I want to help them think about stuff. But this is one that hits me pretty close because I listened to Lex Friedman, Joe Rogan. Um, there's this popular, uh, I just got into uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and the best coach in the world, his name is John uh, Donaher, Danaher. And he was a philosophy student in New York, one of the great school, like like up there. And uh, now he's into jiu-jitsu, but he still is a, a philosopher and he's a naturalist, thoroughgoing naturalist. And he continually propounds the same idea that life is finite and that's what makes it good life uh we're gonna die sometime and so it, it gives us motivation to live today and so uh lex friedman has been uh purporting this a ton for anyone who knows about lex uh he he finds it in ernest becker and some of his work denial of death stuff like that but it's it's basically the idea that the scarcity or finiteness of life is what gives it value and meaning um, and it gives you urgency. So, Paul, I was so stoked to see that you talk about, um, see you address this, and you, you did such a great job on the podcast with it. When did you first come upon this ar- argument? I, I think it's kind of an argument. What would you call this? And then when did you first hear about it? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, I think I, I stumbled upon it um, actually working on my a book project where I was writing a chapter on the meaning of life. I think I've been on talking about that a little yeah. bit with you, but uh, yeah. it's it's basically within the literature, you know, as I was kind of getting acquainted with all the literature on that sort of big question of meaning, um, it's pretty front and center once you start digging into it there. So that's where I first encountered it. Um, but it's interesting because in many ways, it's the kind of question we've been asking as Christians and as people who are trying to make sense of our theology, you know, um, forever too, you know, like what is the afterlife going to be like? And it, is it going to be good? Um, you know, what, you know, are we going to have our bodies and are we going to eat or not eat? And are the laws of nature going to be the same and all that? And so, so it's kind of this fun intersection, I think, of this you know, there's this pretty interesting objection in the literature coming from the, the the literature on the meaning of life. And then, of course, we have all these questions from theology that, that are brought to bear on this as well. And so that was my interest was the intersection of those uh, two things. Yeah. And yeah, I will say, by the way, well, here's one other interesting thing that I noticed, too. You talked about the intuition that uh, Joe Rogan and uh, others were pressing about the scarcity of life makes life meaningful and the yeah. finitude of life makes life meaningful. But there's actually... Um, dueling intuitions. And that's what makes this puzzle such an interesting puzzle. Because another intuition that I think most of us hold is that um, we want life to last, right? We, we, we don't want it to end. And so we have these sort of competing intuitions that we have to make sense of in this larger scheme of the question of meaning. So, so maybe we'll you know, figure that out as we go. Well, that's a great one, man. Uh, and that's the tricky thing with intuitions, right? Like you, yeah. you can use them really well. And it's like, dude, yeah, you, you draw on other people's intuitions. And then as soon as someone wants to get off the boat, they're like, we're just talking about intuitions here. Get out of here. Um, but, but they're so important to us. And they're so important for doing philosophy and theology and think just every day, you know, walking across the street. Um, and so another some of some of the listeners maybe have not listened to John Danaher or Joe Rogan or Lex Friedman, but they have watched The Good Place. Uh, Paul, have you watched The Good Place at all? I feel like everyone has to. Everyone like forces it on people. I watch it because people forced me to watch it. Yeah, you familiar with it? Uh, at all? I've only watched maybe the first two seasons, so uh, I have not watched the whole thing. But I kind of get it. I get the gist of it. So yeah, yeah, I need yeah. to finish the whole thing. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, mostly Taylor Sear jammed it on me, and it was pretty good. The first couple seasons were pretty good, but spoiler alerts for everyone. Spoiler, spoiler. Um, they get to heaven. They get to a good place. Sorry, Paul, I'm spoiling it for you too. But I, they... I know this part. So okay, yeah, great. Ahead. So so they get there, and then. Um, I actually forgot the philosopher, some some lady philosopher, a female philosopher from like way back in the day, Plato's age, and, and uh, Chidi, the uh, the philosopher in the show, he's all stoked to meet her, and she's super dumb. She's like very uh, boring and dull. She can't remember anything. And they find out that it's because this idea of, um, because they've been living eternal life uh, or everlasting life, they have had no motivation. They'll just get to it tomorrow. And so though she was a, a great philosopher on earth, She's let all of her skills go because I can just do it tomorrow. I can, and so uh, again, it's the finitude of life, the scarcity of life argument, uh, and and so they combat that by making this door that you could walk through, and it's basically annihilationism. You can choose your own annihilation, and once everyone has that again, they have a way out, and so they start getting smart again. They start doing stuff, and so it's it's really popular right now, and I actually don't know why that is, um, but. This is the kind of question uh, that a lot of my student athletes have because they listen to Rogan or they watch The Good Place. Um, Paul, any idea why like that's 
popping up in this culture in in this cultural moment why this would be coming through people wouldn't want to live forever yeah uh, that's a great question um i mean that i actually have not seen that episode so i thought you were going to talk about something else the I'm great sorry, switch sorry, I did it. It. well i thought i thought it's uh you know the great switch that i thought was pretty creative is that this actually isn't heaven this is hell kind of thing it's that like, was oh, good that's, that's good yeah. yeah but um in terms of the question you asked just now um i don't know i wonder if it's a combination of the angst that we feel um i mean you know like uh, there's this interesting um thing going on called sunny nihilism or nice nihilism where uh, a lot of Gen Zers evidently, you know, so I'm reading about this, I see this, but they, um, they basically realize or have determined that there's no point to life. There's no meaning to life, but it's just like kind of this big Yahoo, let's go party. Let's, let's go have fun. Let's just do crazy things. Um, and so there's some of that going on in the background, I guess. And then I think some of it is that intuition pump, you know, that, that life is finite and, and we've got to make the most of it. So, I mean, it's, maybe it's kind of a, the pressing of both of those and the, the kind of disenchanted age that we find ourselves in, find ourselves in that makes people um, feel the force of that. And of yeah. course, if, you know, this is all there is, if there's nothing beyond the mundane, um, I mean, gosh, life is kind of pressing, right? And we better make the most of it for tomorrow we die or something like that. Right. Oh, man, that's a great point. I, I think you just connected a bunch of strings for me. There's like YOLO, which was, it started off as a serious thing. And then we all just made fun of everyone who said that or got it tattooed. But it, that is what it is. You only live once. And it is, mm-hmm. dude, that's great. It is like the sunny nihilism of the past, uh, you know, you, you'll hear apologists talk about how they long for the old atheists who, to us, seem more honest. And they'd say, you know, life is meaningless and this sucks. Uh, so we're going to be absurdist or something crazy. And then now today, this was the the caricature, and, and maybe rightly so, of the new atheists that, bro, you guys aren't taking your stuff as seriously as you should. Um, and so I think that has kind of seeped in. Um, and that makes sense. So that's really helpful. Um so, Paul, I've seen it on the popular level. I haven't done as much uh, reading in, in like the, the literature on death and, and immortality type stuff. I, I should, but I haven't. I've, I've caught it from the from the culture. You have done a little bit more work. So so who are the thinkers uh, that, that you've uh, been interacting with? Yeah, I mean, I think on this question, um, someone who there is this great little Cambridge Elements uh, book by Thaddeus Metz called God, Soul and and the Meaning of Life. And in there, he does a great job summarizing um, this argument from boredom. And so that would be a good place as a quick sort of way to access that. But sort of the, the, the classic argument or essay was advanced by Bernard Williams in 1973. And he was actually pulling from a play and, and just being creative. But there he that's that's sort of where this began, um, I think, in force within the philosophical literature. Um, and then since then, there's been lots of you know replies to replies uh, and, and so on with Bernard Williams. But let, let me um, maybe just to get us going. What if I yeah. summarize? from Metz, what this argument is, because you're right, it is this kind of, you could even call it like this argument from repetition. So I've just got, it's like two sentences here, the way he puts it, he says, there appeared to be only a finite number of actions that one could perform in an infinite amount of time, in which case one must end up doing the same thing, things, and doing the same things would be incompatible with the growth, progress, or at least variety that many associate with a life's being meaningful. And so there's that connection pretty clearly between, you know, repetition forever and and uh, the lack of meaning. And so, you know, the classic 
sort of example would be like the myth of Sisyphus and this ro- rolling this rock up a hill only to have it roll down, only to roll it up again forever. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, a meaningless activity. And I think the, the argument, what it's pressing is that all of our activities, maybe that's what they're doing in the good place. All of our activities become meaningless because they're so repetitive. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's, I think a pretty clear statement of the argument. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, I catch that. And to me, it doesn't have, it doesn't have much force. And maybe it's just because I think it's Camus who said, you got to imagine Sisyphus smiling. And uh, yeah. there's, yeah. There, there's all sorts of like great memes about Sisyphus just being jacked and being like, I love doing this. And like, I could listen to, um, I think it's yellow lead better uh, uh, by Pearl Jam. I could listen to that on repeat, maybe the rest of eternity. I love that song. I don't know why, but to me, it doesn't have, I love repetition and stuff. Um, how, what, what do you make of this when you hear this? Like, does it have pull for you? Yeah. Are you like, yeah. Actually, I, I would want to, I was just looking at it, that this quote um, earlier and, and there's only one part of it that has some pull for me. So, okay. you know, he says things like this. He says this, the second sentence and doing the same thing would be incompatible. So here's a claim incompatible. So repetition is incompatible with three things, according to him, growth, progress. And then he says at least variety that many associate with, you know, meaningful life. I think the first two of those three things aren't, they don't move me. In fact, they're, they're pretty obviously false. So for example, is um, repetition incompatible with with growth? I mean, I think it's just the exact opposite. Right. Um, you know, empirically, you know, we we do things repetitively to grow. You know, that's mm-hmm. what habits are, and that's how we form character. If we're good Aristotelians so and things like that, so I, yeah. so I think that's that one doesn't move me. It doesn't seem right empirically. I think Aristotle's right on that. Um, you know, that our habits are what form us. And so we, we grow through routine, um, in terms of progress, same thing. I mean, your example with Sisyphus, you know, with the, with the muscles, I mean, there is progress there, right. Um, even though he's doing a pretty menial task, uh, in terms of growth and strength. And I, I think that you could see that for many of the things that we do repetitively, like think of, you know, isn't it, uh, Malcolm Gladwell that, that argued that, you know, you, any expert needs to invest 10,000 hours to become an expert. Well, that's right. a lot of repetition in order to get progress. And I've got my son who wants to play soccer in college. And so every day he's out practicing soccer and, and, and yeah. things like that. And so that doesn't move me. So I think the only part of this that that does have, to me, um, some plausibility would be the last piece that he says. He calls it, or at least variety, that many associate with life's being meaningful. So I think maybe that one is where some of the intuitive pull lo- works. You know, if everything just becomes the same boring, monotonous thing, well, then life does seem kind of, bo- well, boring and maybe meaningless. So yeah. I would focus there. But again, even there, and we can, I'll pause, but even there, I think there's things we can say. How about you? What, yeah. are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I, okay. And I think you're right. You helped motivate that one for me. I think um, when I have encountered this before uh, and just thought about, you know, I, I'm sure we grow up and we think about this kind of stuff too. When we think about heaven, if any of us think about theology, when we come home after, after Sunday school and you go, yeah, maybe that'll be boring. Or you have something in your mind, like, you know, you're sitting on a cloud playing a harp. I think what, what really does motivate if you added this would be, if you think that you're perfect in the sense, not of being sinless, uh, but being wholly complete, then it's like, Oh, okay. So my muscles, uh, if we even think about having a new body, usually we think about being disembodied spirit on a cloud. But if I have this new body, 
it's going to be perfect, man. And with evangelicals, we talk about this all the time. I'm going to be six foot three because that's the perfect height, right? And my muscles will already be fully formed because it's heaven or it's a new heaven, new earth. So I'll be perfect. I think if you add that detail in, it, it does kind of wreck ship on, on everything because what, what progress are you going to make on a perfect body? What, what amount of knowledge are you going to uh, gain when you have perfect knowledge? And so I think that intuition mixed with uh, this third uh, criteria thing could mess with some, at least evangelicals, if that's where we're coming with our theology. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Here, so here's what I would say, though, even with that third one. And actually, um, if we were to if we were to switch back to the original essay by Bernard Williams, um, yeah. and I'm just going to summarize just to point your listeners to a great resource. Um, Stuart Getz and Joshua Seacrest are two of the philosophers that I look to that have written a ton, both of them individually and then together on the meaning of life. And one of their little books is up with Rutledge. It's actually called, what is this thing called the meaning of life? And in there, they summarize Bernard Williams argument um, in terms of two conditions that, that need to be satisfied for life to the afterlife to be um, meaningful. And the basic two conditions that Bernard Williams set forth are, are an identity condition. And, and that's just the idea that we need to be the same person uh, both before and after death, you know, to to um, be the referent of that thing that enjoys. And then this attractiveness condition, AC, we could call it. Um, the life of the person across immortal existence must be attractive to that individual. And so I think that um, it's the question of the attractive condition that, that to me is the real puzzle that um, I think that when you bring sort of our Christian worldview or theology and philosophical thoughts to, to that, to bear, um, I think that we have some things to say to that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we'll probably focus on that one a little bit more. The, the first condition, the uh, personal identity over time, I, I forgot what you called it or what's yeah, it called? Just say identity condition. Identity um, condition. The person must be the same person from one point to the next across immortal existence. Yeah. So we need to be enduring substances. Basically it's a little metaphysics. Uh, that, that's really helpful for me, dude, because, um, and I know this isn't the, the topic right now, but, Something I've thought about as being um, a, being a Christian and having kind of a radical transformation in college and saying, look, uh, what was so helpful for overcoming a lot of sin in my life was saying, I'm not that guy anymore. That's not me. Mm -hmm. I'm a new creation, right? And, and following the scripture mm -hmm. on that. And that would mess with like the, the continuity of my personhood when I would think about it and be like, well, that was old Parker. This is the new one. I'm already kind of not yet, right? But um does substance dualism like help us with that so that we can say, look, it's still the same substance, even though like, I don't think, I don't even have the same desires that I used to have. Um, I'm actively yeah. trying to kill those desires. So that's not the same Parker. And that kind of just messed with me when I start reflecting on being a new creation and still being the same individual. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I love that. Um, I can remember having those same questions and trying to work through that myself. Um, yeah, I think something like substance dualism, there's different versions of substance dualism. I think that is um, is, is very helpful. I know there's non-dualist options where you're, they're trying to make sense of identity across the, you know, the divide of death and things like that. But I do think that ultimately the best and most plausible um, and I think most consistent with scripture uh, views are those that, that um, 
understand humans as some sort of composite of a body and a soul, however they put that together. My yeah. views, my view, I mean, we could talk about this. I know this isn't the topic. I, I do say I am, a, I'm identical to my soul and I have a body, but it's actually closer. It's, it's, um, it's closer to a kind of hylomorphism. Um, so I'm not a composite of body and soul, but I'm actually a soul that has a body. And so in the intermediate state, I won't have that body, but it's still me. I, yeah. that person will be the same person through, through that time. And then we'll get, I'll get my body back and I have a view of, of what that looks like. Um, so it'll be me throughout all of those sort of transitions. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's, that is definitely helpful for that, for that first one. Okay. To start, just, just to jump on that really quick um, in the disembodied state, are you still a human person or are you? Um, Cause I know people have weird views on this. What weird yeah. to me? Uh, are you still a human person, or do you like gain your humanity back when you are the myriological whole that is? Yeah, your, your body. So, yeah, you know it's interesting. I just finished a, a four views book where we uh, four views on Christian metaphysics, where I kind of entered a little bit into this debate. I debated, as you know, Parker. I defended this view called Christian Platonism, um, and that that view is just about whether there's abstract objects. But you know, um, so it's not exactly relevant to the question about our souls and body. But anyway, we got into the debate in this book uh, with the good Aristotelian there. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, my, my view is a little different than, although I do consider it a kind of hylomorphism. Uh, you know, hylomorphism is just the view that, that humans are composites of, the, of a body and a soul. Mm-hmm. For the Aristotelian, um, you're identical to that body-soul composite. So it's the body plus the soul that equals the human person. And I think that what the problem with that, given the intermediate state, is if you're identical to the body-soul composite and in the intermediate state, state, you no longer have your body, then it's not strictly speaking you that's in heaven. It's a part of you. It's the, right. the, the soul part of you. Um, and so I forget... I, I forget if it's that you're no longer a human or you're just no longer a person, but one of those things drops yeah. and then you kind of get it back. You know, um, on my view though, no, you're identical to your soul and you have a body. So you're a person the whole way through a human person. Okay. And um, I love how actually uh, Dr. Brandon Rickabau talks about it. You're a bodily soul. Like it's, it's unnatural for us to be disembodied. So we're still a bodily soul. We're just a disembodied bodily soul when we're in the intermediate state. And then we get that body back, um, you know, in the resurrection. Uh, and so all throughout, though, it, the referent is me, you know, the human person that I am on this view. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't do. So there's two. So, again, to do more on this, there's um, muriological and non-muriological understandings of the body-soul relationship. And mine would be the non-muriological, where you're a soul that has a body. So we're not a composite. That would be the muriological view. You're just a soul that has a body as a part. Um, but it, but it's not who you it, – it doesn't identify who I am. Yeah. No, that, I think that's really helpful, especially, you know, taking Brandon's language there because – so often, dude, I, I speak to evangelicals because I grew up evangelical. I am an evangelical, but it's just the Simpsons view of of the afterlife. And we're going to be floating around and to recognize, hey, look, it's not complete. It's good to be with the Lord, but it's actually not the best to be away from my body because I was created to be a, an embodied soul. That's right. And it's so, unnatural. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's not the end goal. There is going to be a new heavens, new earth. And that brings us back to yeah. to, to eternal life and, and a new creation being being boring or, or not being boring. Um, so, so now we got to look at that second condition, the uh, attractiveness. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what was yeah. the language again, Paul? 
Yeah, just attractiveness condition, the idea that the life of the person across a mortal existence must be attractive to that individual. Yeah. So yeah. you and so the you, Well, so you and Courtney talked about like um uh Groundhog's Day. And I thought that was great you guys brought that up because it's like the same thing over and over and over and over and that's kind of what we think about it. But man, even in Groundhog's Day, he had moral transformation and became a better right. dude at the end. Spoiler, I guess, but that's mm-hmm. movies forever. Yeah. It's uh, old movie. Yeah. Even through all that crazy repetition, who knows how long that took, he grew as a person. That's right. Yeah. So. Yeah. And so, again, that would be a counterexample to that claim that Metz gives that that uh, repetition is incompatible with growth and progress. I mean, he's, yeah. you, you know, so even our movies kind of get that. Yeah. So. Um, so, Paul, what's the theology behind this that would help us uh, motivate those who who are moved by by uh, Metz's argument and, and all the similar arguments? Like, how do we motivate that for them from our from our own Christian yeah. Worldview. Yeah, I'd want to say two things. One more, maybe a philosophical point, and one more theological point. But the philosophical point, um, it's just this observation that many philosophers have noted that some uh, some pleasures are in, indeed repeatable pleasures. And so there's a, so you know again to be to be good thinkers, we need to learn to make distinctions. So a relevant distinction on this topic would be this distinction between repeatable pleasures and what are called self-exhausting or exhausted pleasures. And we can think of many, I think, in both of these categories. So for example, um, many pleasures are repeatable and examples would be things like relationships that are, there's a kind of inexhaustedness to them or, or just creativity itself or sex or food, um, you know, or, and, and many more. And then, you know, we could also think of others that are basically exhausted in the occurrence of that pleasure. I was thinking about this. It might be things like graduating high school. It's like, you know, that was great to do it. We've got a kid that's graduating high school this year, but my guess is that while he might think that's the highlight of his life, he doesn't want to do that again, right? It's kind of self-exhausted. For me, it was um, another one, I think, was summoning Long's Peak in Ro- the Rocky Mountain National Park where, yeah. like, I loved it. It was awesome. And it was actually brutal, too. I'm so glad I summited that day. Uh, it took me three times over the course of six years with my son. But we finally did it. But I don't think I'd want to do it again, no. right? I'm just getting old, so maybe that's just for me. That was a kind of self-exhausted one. Maybe, maybe in the afterlife, I'll be excited to do that again. And so I think that distinction, though, alone um, helps, right? So there's a philosophical distinction. Um, but then theologically, like, oh, real quick, let me, let me let me yeah. jump in again. Uh, just just before we get to the theological, uh, can you say those two again? So they're self-exhaustive, and then. Mm-hmm. Non-repetitive, yeah, or non-self-exhausting. So, yeah, things that can continue to satisfy um, over and over again. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're not exhausted in one occurrence. So, um, like, before we jump on the the theological here, too, um, I know you're just listing them, but I'm I'm jumping in. So, um, you'd mentioned that, and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but but maybe not, that for you, it's a self-exhaustive to to sum at the peak. Is there... um, it, it seems like to me in these conversations, we already talked about intuitions. People come with these you know, prepackaged or, or uh, prior probabilities and all sorts of stuff coming in. That, and is there a subjective and a, an objective aspect to the self-exhaustive or repetitive? Um, yeah. Is, is there is there an ought that, that's there that people are missing? I know that this will get into the theological, but like, do you know what I mean? Like maybe you – Maybe everyone should think this is a repetitive one, but but people don't because of sin or fallenness or because we were abused or, or whatever. Like, 
have you considered that that aspect to things? Yeah, that's that's actually a great question, um, and I'm kind of thinking on the fly here. But I, I think that if we think about what pleasures are. Um, they're kinds of valuable states of affairs, right? So it gets us into that realm of normativity and oughtness and value. Um, and so I do think there is a sense in which values are both objective, many of them. And then, of course, there will be some that are kind of like preferences, things that I like that maybe you don't. So there is, so, but I do think um, those activities that are intrinsically valuable or inherently valuable um, or good or beautiful, or true, like relationships, creativity, the ones that are more central to what it means to be human, I do think those are the kinds of things we ought to enjoy, right? Okay. So, like, I can remember reading uh, Camus, um, I think it was The Plague, and um, there was a character in there that all he did every day was count peas. He had, like, two pans, he's sitting in a bed, he's just putting them in, you know, one pan and counting, and then he just goes back to the other one. And it's like, well, that's not an intrinsically valuable state of affairs, right? So, if, even if he took pleasure in that, he ought not to take pleasure in that, right? Sure. So, I think we kind of, I think that's a great question that that presses us a little fo- forward here. It does seem that there's some pleasures, though, that are intrinsically valuable, objectively so, and that we ought to enjoy them. And those pleasures, many of them, maybe not all of them, maybe we ought to enjoy um, graduating from high school because that supervenes on some other pleasure that is intrinsically or inherently valuable. Uh-huh. Right? So maybe maybe that's the, uh, the other distinction that we need to have. Um, and so maybe the intrinsically valuable thing there is like uh, accomplishing a goal that you set for yourself or something like that. That's part yeah. of growth and maturity. Um, yeah. So I think you're right. I think that that is going to have to be part of this. Okay. The of the day. Yeah. 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 The, the d- deeper one could be applied in different situations could be like making your parents proud or something. And that would be, so I, I think of that because uh, Lewis talks about CS Lewis talks about um, he didn't like kids. He didn't like the company of children and he, he didn't, he wasn't just an old curmudgeon who said, screw kids. He was like, no, I recognize that's not something that's good in me, and I ought to. I just don't right now. And uh, I thought that was really, really helpful. And I think because he's a Christian, he's recognizing that kind of thing. But for w- when it comes to these type of intuitions, people say, well, who? Um, some of the new atheists or whatever, who would want to serve a God forever who's just demanding worship, you know? And, and their intuition is completely opposite of mine. Because I'm like, well, dude, I think objectively we're made to worship and I I feel amazing when I do that. When I'm wrestling and I'm considering it worship or doing jujitsu or whatever it is, it feels amazing. It feels like I'm in God's will and I love it. For them, it's like, this is awful. It feels like you're a totalitarian dictator ruling cosmically. And so, yeah, yeah I thought that, that was a something when we're in these conversations for, for people to acknowledge that, yeah, we do have different intuitions, different presuppositions, whatever starting points. But I, I'm glad you want to also acknowledge the objectivity of things, even if those might be hard to put our finger on. Yeah. But notice what you did there. I think this is actually really important is you grounded this discussion in 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 a cosmological question. You know, what is the nature of the world or a, a metaphysics, metaphysical question? You know, it, it all depends on the kind of creatures we are and the kind of world that we find ourselves in. Like if you were made, there's the language that you use to worship. Well, then we ought to worship and take pleasure in it, right? And so that's what's so interesting. The question of life's meaning very quickly becomes a question in metaphysics that's that's forced first and foremost a question of cosmology. And that's where that second reply will come in, right? That we've got to think a little bit about the nature of the world, the nature of what it means to 
have life and then we can apply it to the question of the afterlife. So yeah, that's a great observation. Thanks, man. Um, okay. So let's, let's go on into the second part, the theology that I, I interrupted you on. Yeah, no, that's great. So if the first is just that distinction between different kinds of pleasures and that there might be some that, that are repeatable, and I think there are. The second one is basically just this claim that, hey, it all depends on what the afterlife is like, right? And that goes to metaphysics. It goes to theology. I think all the best metaphysical questions ultimately end up as theological questions, and this is one of those for sure. Um, what is the nature of the afterlife? Well, it all depends if God exists and, and things like that. And so I love, I was reading, um, Jamie K.A. K. Smith wrote this book recently called On the Road with St. Augustine, and in there he has this great quote. Um, he says that the idea of a boring, everlasting life, and here's the quote, is less the fruit of some considered naturalism and more the default position of a culture that's made a God out of present pleasures. Yeah. And I think that's that's actually really an apt description of where maybe this objection gets its force, is that, you know, our, our culture tells us that we live in this disenchanted world. There's nothing beyond this world. All the pleasures that, that there are, the pleasures that we see. There, uh, and 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 the, the pleasures that we experience in a godless universe, and of course, if that's kind of the conception of if our conception of the afterlife is just that we're extending this kind of godless world into eternity, well, that's not super attractive, right? But of course, the Christian doesn't think that that's what this world is like. First of all, let alone the afterlife, and so that's why I think we have to get questions into what is what do we mean by life, and then what actually can we say or think about the afterlife and so yeah. that's that's where i would want to take it yeah i i'm i uh i re i pulled over and listened to that part again uh from from jamie smith because it's such a good it's such a good idea behind there and it's it's uh again a lot of this comes back to c.s lewis and it's like you know we're kids playing with mud pies we don't have no idea about a uh, holiday at the beach um, when infinite joy awaits us right yes. that's what he says yeah yeah that's good. good. I missed that part. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's really important. Infinite joy. Um, mm -hmm. So the continuation of this world. This that's a great point that you just brought up, and it it actually helps me understand someone from a non Christian uh, perspective saying I don't want that because right. that's for us that's closer to hell that right. you will be like uh, again Lewis uh, uh, great divorce. The the problem with everyone was they were still in that state that they were in of being sinful and separated from God just further down the line, just further mm -hmm. progress away from the Lord. Further and disintegration, so, yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And yeah, disintegration. And if that's what we're talking about with eternal life, and that's the conception you have, you don't have a, a conception of regeneration or the beatific vision, which you bring up uh, a type of beatific vision, because that's a whole loaded thing. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have that, then yeah, that would be awful, man. We're just going to be bickering with our family uh, forever and our our... We're going to be breaking up with people. Like, it sounds terrible. Um, and so I'm glad that there is an expiration date on fallen creation. And so I can resonate with them that, yeah, I don't want this to go on for eternity. You know, what's, what's so interesting, too, is that many um, philosophers have noted this connection between meaning and pleasure anyhow, mm -hmm. where pleasure becomes vapid if, dis, if it's dis engaged from meaning, right? Yeah. And so like you think of like the law of diminishing return on anything, it sure. becomes less and less pleasurable and less and less meaningful. Um, and so 
it's kind of interesting, like, you know, if we're already looking at this world through a naturalistic eyes and the pleasures are diminishing because they lack meaning, well, of course, they're going to be infinitely diminished if we extend it for eternity past. And so, so I get that. But yeah. again, there's a, there's a begging of the question there about the nature, the, this cosmological question. What is the nature of the world we find ourselves in? Yeah. Um, and that's why we've, we've got to go there and explore that a little bit. Yeah. Well, let's go there, man. Uh, so, so what, uh, this is going to get speculative, right? But um, <laughs> well, you're a philosopher. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So what, what do we know, man? Like, let's paint a picture for people. Uh, um, why, why is uh, the afterlife in a Christian worldview? Um, and it, look, some people get upset when I say that. I'm not saying I think it's the truth. So I'm saying I'm speaking from a Christian perspective. I'm not saying this is all subjectivism, blah, blah. I think this is the truth. Just back off. Uh, but Paul, what is the uh, afterlife like? What can we know? Yeah, you're right. It gets a little speculative, but there are, as you can imagine, views out there. And I think there's a way to at least categorize the kind of main conceptions that theologians and philosophers hold about the afterlife. And that'll at least give us a framework as we begin to kind of wrestle with these questions <clears throat> ourselves. And so I guess, uh, let me just say one thing, and then I'll give you the framework. But one thing that's, I think, important even before we begin, this is what Jesus says in John 17, 3, where, you know, he basically says, now this is eternal life that we might know Jesus Christ. And so even there, what we learn is that that man's highest good is a relational good, right? And Eleanor Stomp and Aquinas and so many others have picked up on this, that our highest good it isn't like some non-relational thing like having a cool car, no, or, or being really wealthy. Our highest good is being in personal union in this case, with the the being that created us, right? So yeah. this is this is our highest good. That's the first thing. Actually, I said I'd say one thing. I'm going to say um, I'm going to say two things. Yeah. Oh wait, it was there and then it's gone. Um, <laughs> it'll come back. So yeah. I'll come back to whatever that second thought was. Um, okay, let me give you the framework though, and, and I think a helpful, if just to point maybe your listeners to um, a helpful place. There's a wonderful introduction to philosophical theology by. Um, Stephen Davis and Eric Yang. And I think it's just called an introduction to philosophical theology. I think you've had Eric on, um, maybe Parker, maybe not. No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Uh, Anyway, so they've got a great chapter where they, they kind of lay out, there's basically two kinds of views. There's what, what we might call a static view. And then there's a dynamic view of the afterlife. The static view um, is sometimes called the single activity view, that there'll be one kind of thing that we'll be doing for eternity. And then there's this more dynamic view that, no, 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 we'll be doing multiple things yeah. um, for eternity. And of course, both both views actually have a rich history. The single view, the, the single view that sti- static view, uh, probably begins with Plato, but it certainly has been captured by the Christian tradition, uh, Augustine, um, Aquinas, Dante, all of them. It's the beatific vision tradition. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the static view, though, has been there from the beginning as well. So let me pause there. That's the kind of big picture. And then we can maybe unpack both and, and I'll at least tentatively say where I think I land. But that's, yeah. that's the big picture. So we got static. The other one's dynamic, right? Yeah. Okay. And and static, um, uh, static is what I think of as the Simpsons. It's one thing. Uh, you're playing a harp in the clouds, but you're right. looking at God. Mm-hmm. And I've I've grown to like that one more because it, that sounds super boring. Like you, you go like, yeah, you could do that for for five years. You could do that for you know even five billion years. But after the mm-hmm. you know six billionth year, man, and then you kind of catch yourself and you go, wait, wait. Even if that was the case, I'm looking at the Lord of Glory. I don't even know what that means. So like, mm-hmm. holy cow. Yeah. I, 
God, I could just sit and look at God forever and he could make that a pleasurable, awesome thing for me for sure. Um, and it's more nuanced than that when you get into some of the, some of the authors as well, but just in, intuitively as people hear that, I, I get why people would be like, yeah, that sounds boring. Um, the dynamic one, I mean, it's dynamic. It sounds awesome. But, uh, Paul, can you, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the static. Maybe you can motivate that one for us too. And why it's not, it's not boring. Okay. Yeah, good. Um, I, I remember the thing I was going to say too. the second nice. thing. Um, it, 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 again, it's just a, a biblical uh, Psalm 35 verse 27. It's so interesting in there. It basically describes God as, as a being that delights ch- when his um, children prosper. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's important to bring to this discussion too, right? That not only is eternal life found in a relationship with God, like that is what we are created for, but also scripture is pretty clear that God wants us to flourish, right? He delights in our flourishing. It's actually the language in Psalm 35, 27. So I bring those as sort of the datum that, yeah. that we apply to these questions, not just yeah. for this life, but even for the afterlife. Okay. So in terms wait, of, wait, um, oh, sorry, sorry, you jumped. Yeah. yeah I, I, I had something too that yeah, I remembered from that. Um, so there's like this now, dude, everything gets so cliche in, in Christianity and in Christendom, whatever. Um, but people go now, now people will mock you for saying Christianity is a, re, a relationship, not a religion. And they go, what is religion? You know, James says uh, it's, it's good and proper religion. It's true religion. It's to visit the poor. And okay. Yes, for sure. I just want to like re-motivate the idea that Christianity is a relationship. Of course, I think it's the true religion, but true religion was always meant to be a relationship with God. Right. And this is the this is the God of the universe who made you and knows all the hairs on your head. This is the God who 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 wrote your story. And that's who you're going to have a relationship with. So it's not like this Jesus is my boyfriend, squishy. No, this is the God who made lightning and thunder and volcanoes. And also cares about you and supernovas and all, you know, and, and uh, wood ducks and, and salamanders. So that's the kind of relationship. So don't, if you're hearing this, like, don't get caught down in all the popular canards of it's a religion, it's a relationship. Like when you hear relationship, think relationship with the living, active God of the universe. That's epic. That's amazing. So I just wanted to, any chance I can harp on that, I will. No, that's great. And I love, I mean, even, even um, Lewis is so good. I think it's in Miracles, but he says something like, um, you know, this is the living God that approaches us, it, you know, with this infinite speed, you know, and, mm. and just that it's not the static being, right? It's the living God. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And I think this, this single uh, activity view actually... I think it makes big on what you just said, this idea that the God of the universe has created us to know him yeah. and to be in relationship with him. And so, you know, the beatitude is this idea of um, basically delighting in God, you know, uh, comprehending, beholding, being in the presence of having close personal union with God. I mean, that's basically what it is. Um, and just to unpack that a little bit, C.S. Lewis is in the beatitude tradition I should say, sorry, the beatific vision tradition. Um, And he argues in a number of places that heaven consists of two great goods. One is glory or fame, and then two is this beatitude uh, or the beatific vision of God. And so, and and one is a necessary condition for the other. So the first one, fame um, or glory, you know, we talk about the weight of glory that Lewis wrote about in one of his essays. What is that? And actually, this is where he talks about this. Um, What is that weight of glory? Well, that it's one day 
in the afterlife, we will be an ingredient in God's happiness, right? Mm. And so our flourishing is actually connected deeply to God's flourishing and, and, and vice versa, that we'll actually be an ingredient. We'll have fame. We'll have weight. We'll have rapport. So that's a net, and that's why Jesus came to, 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 to transform us, like you said earlier, from the old Parker to the new, yeah. theologically speaking, where we take on the second nature, this, this new New, new, well, nature. This, I'm using first and second nature, um, not philosophically. Like we take on this new character yeah. uh, because of who we are in Christ, and then we're you know transformed and ultimately infused with uh, 100% righteousness. All these things so that we can be with God, perfect in the sense that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. So we need that fame, we need that glory. We become an ingredient in God's happiness, and then the reward of that is this this permanent, close, eternal. Uh, beatific vision of God where we behold him and are fully satisfied in this relationship for all of eternity. Um, and, and that's, that's, I don't know, that's kind of a, a basic summary of, of what we were made for. And I think it makes big on this truth that our highest good is to know God and to yeah. know him fully and completely. Yeah. So that's obviously really attractive. So I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. Well, that, that is really attractive. Uh, I, I can hear my reformed friends, uh, God doesn't depend on us for his happiness. But I mean, you quoted the Psalm where he says he delights in, in Mm -hmm. his children and uh, succeeding in stuff too. So it's not like it's uh, God has, has chosen to do that. He chose to create us. He chose to adopt us, making it make us his children. And he delights in that. So that's a good thing that God does. That's still dependent on him. He's still, I say, um, so, so don't get all twisted like that. It's okay. Um, Paul, I really like that one. Is there in the tradition, man, is it just is the beatific vision? I, it's it's called the, the static view. Does it have to be like, did, is it just you sitting there or um, yeah. yeah, what do you think? Well, OK, so there's some so you so you like it as I do, but you also have some uneasiness with it. And that's interesting right. um, because I think probably everybody that characterizes it might have some initial uneasiness as well. And that's because we also. Well, let me go intuitively and then we'll go scripturally. Um, intuitively, like, you know, we've had these conversations, like we speak like this way all the time, like, you know, um, I will see you again in heaven, you know, yeah. um, or I can't wait to ask the Apostle Paul that, or I can't wait to ask C.S. Lewis that, or I can't wait right. to ask whoever, pick your favorite, like, you know, dead person or a person in the afterlife, right? Sorry, yeah, how we understand that. Um, and so there's there's this very common language that we use as Christians, as non-Christians, that we will see people, and therefore we're having multiple relationships, right? We're not just beholding this single activity. We're talking to other people, we're relating to other people. And then when you add to that some of the, the biblical passages, I mean, you look in the Gospels and Jesus is teaching on the afterlife. It's like a feast. They'll be yeah. literally eating and drinking. Or if you go to, I think, a big passage that we can talk about um, that I find really persuasive is Revelation 21, and then, of course, the, which is also echoing Isaiah 60, but there you have, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, um, and you have Jerusalem coming down, is the language, coming down from heaven to the, the new earth. And in there you have, actually, I've got my Bible here, so can I just yeah, jump turn in. to it? Um, in there you have language like this. Um, 
So you have, this is chapter 21, verse 24. You have language like this. The nations will walk by their light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Uh, And then it says, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. And then it says, the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And so Andy Crouch makes big of this chapter and the idea that we're bringing our culture, the best of the culture here, you will find this in the afterlife, right? And you have this city, like a literal city with all the cultural goods. And of course they're purified and they're refined and they're whatever, you know, they're, they're, they're made holy or however we understand it, but they're there. And so in this vision, and, and again, I think that Revelations 21 and other places are pretty clear. We're doing, we're creating, we're working, we're worshiping, we're, we're relating, we're feasting, we're celebrating, we're exploring, that's the that's that's attractive too, and I think there's some biblical warrant for that. Yeah. So, I think the problem is we're attracted to both views, or at least I am. Yeah, and, and definitely, so. definitely. So in in uh, in Revelation, yeah, it seems like we we are bringing some stuff in. And it's it's being tried by fire, and yeah. there's also there's there's all sorts of theology in there that like there's other verses as well. You'll be saved, but though as through fire, and so some right. people have have nothing left because it was all straw and it wasn't built on, on the kingdom. It wasn't done for God. Uh, others um, in crew. I love crew. I work for crew used to work for crew. So we can bad mouth them a little bit, but in crew, there was this idea that like, if, if you're not working for the kingdom, you're, everything's going to get totally burned, like literally physically burned and you're going to have an ash pile. And mm-hmm. so why would I want to save up all this money and do all this stuff uh, that's not for the kingdom, just to show that I had a bigger ash pile. And, you know, someone very high up in crew used to always say that. And that's just, I don't think that's right. You know, yeah. unless if, if all you did was was sow with uh, or build with straw, then okay, yeah, sure. But like, as you're doing things for the Lord, it doesn't all have to just be ministry where, uh, like, depending on what how you define ministry, it doesn't all have to be evangelism. Mm-hmm. Uh, man, you could build a hospital and that could, I don't know what the metaphysics or whatever, the ontology of that will be in the new heavens and new earth, but like God takes delight in that and you're doing that for him. I don't think he's just going to burn everything up like that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like a, a metaphorical, maybe it is, maybe it's a little fr- literal fire that he's he's purifying things with, but. I, I like this view, all that to say, like, I used to think more of that made things seem a lot more futile, uh, our actions here on earth, that like all of everything's going to get totally destroyed. All the books, you know, it's going to be like a thousand times worse than the uh, the burning of Alexandrian library. Like, it's gonna be awful. But no, man, some uh, you write an amazing book and it glorifies God that could be brought into eternity. Yeah, I re- you know, it's interesting. You're a crew staff member. I was a crew staff member. I grew up, uh, my faith, I became a Christian through crew. And the, one of the first things I was taught, and I didn't realize how much this messed with my theology, um, but it did for a while was, and I, I can remember it because it's basically said this way, there's three things that are eternal. Have you heard this? Yeah, yeah. Soul of the man, the, the word of God, and uh, maybe... What's it? What's it? yeah? There's at least two of them. I can't remember the other one. The souls of I don't God. Know if there is a third. Maybe there's maybe, a third. Maybe just two. The souls of God but, and the word of word of uh, yeah. souls of souls of people. No, God, the souls of people, and and the word of God. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And so um, I can remember then when I began 
studying theology and, and just sort of reading all of scripture, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We get our bodies back for eternity. Yeah. Right. And we're, we're on this earth and this heaven and, and it's a physical embodied thing. And so it kind of, it took me a while to like realize, wait a minute. No, no, no. There's something much more beautiful, much more grand, much more, um, a much richer theology of the body than I was yeah. initially taught. And, and so anyway, um, yeah, I, I think that I'm pretty convinced that no, we're going to, you know, I tell people all the time, no, we will have this body back yeah. uh, or a body back, you know, and um, we will exist forever. And that, you know, on this heaven and earth, maybe we'll yeah. explore it. You know, I don't know. Yeah. When people say that part of the, what we'll be doing in the eschaton is, is doing interstellar travel and, and, yeah. you know, exploring the, this big, beautiful place that God has made. I don't know, but that's interesting. I think that's interesting too. That was kind of one of the evangelical uh, answers growing up. Some were really good. Some were really bad, but uh, you know, when, when, when apologetic questions come up and we talk about dinosaurs, we talk about age of their no. stuff, but this was one of them where it's like, no, we were meant to explore the, the, the stars. The, the counter is just, yeah, maybe got me to gigantic universe just to show us how small we are. And so we can see his yeah. beauty and uh, yeah, either one, but either I could see us yeah. exploring. Right. So mm -hmm. Paul, you, you talked about the static, the dynamic, you, you motivate them both. So everyone's probably thinking you're coming down somewhere in the middle here. Are, are you, you going to yeah. do that for us? I mean, if you hang out with me, you know, more and more Parky, you'll find out that I think truth is often in the middle. And so, uh, um, yeah, I think there's a way to reconcile both because there's, there's, there's good things in both of these. And I think good biblical um, reasons to hold to both. And so I think all, all the, the, the trick here is to um, you could go two different ways. I think you could opt for in the afterlife, we'll have sort of two spheres of consciousness. One sphere, a center of our consciousness will be fully devoted and paying attention to and beholding the divine being in perfect union. And the other one will be kind of doing all these other activities. That's not the one that I think, I think that probably a more helpful way that I would want to conceive. And again, speculative, right? At this yeah. point, but a way to rec to reconcile the two is actually, we make a distinction already right now between um, the, the center of our conscious awareness and the periphery of our conscious awareness. So for example, I'm, I'm, I'm centrally aware of you right now because I'm looking at you well mediated through the screen or whatever, but you know, I'm having this conversation with you, but also at the periphery of my awareness, the, the, um, air conditioning is going on and it's kind of annoying because it's in the background and I've got a little pain in my knee because I run and I shouldn't because I've got no cartilage. And those are kind of in the periphery of my awareness, right? And I can bring it to my center if I want to, but it was already there in the periphery. And I think that distinction between center and periphery is is the way to go here to, to blend them both. Hmm. And it goes something like this. There, there'll be times when all we are doing in heaven at the center of our conscious awareness is worshiping and beholding the beatific vision of God. And that's right. And that's good. And that that's part of what you see in Revelation 4 and 7 and all over as we worship God. But on the other hand, there will be times when we're relating to others, we're, we're doing the whatever work it is that we do and whatever celebrating, whatever activities we do in the eschaton, but always in that periphery, we are beholding in deep personal relationship with God, this union and close attention to God. That's to me, very attractive. And I think it does at least some initial justice to the kinds of things we see in scripture. So that's, um, that's what I find most attractive at the moment. I, I like that man, because it also sounds um, like what, Christ inaugurated here on earth, that we go and we go together, we collect together to focus just on God. Like that's what the church service is supposed to be. It's remembrance. It's, you know, worshiping God, uh, though your whole life is worship, but it's, it's, it's 
specialized, it's focused worship um, right at the center of our awareness. And then the rest of the week, we are supposed to go and and, and worship. We're supposed to relate. We're supposed to share God's word. We're supposed to evangelize. We're supposed to build things and create. And then we come back and and we do that again. So that it makes sense that that would be because that's what he uh, inaugurated here on earth. And that's the the kingdom of God. It would make sense that that would be um, the next the next thing we do. Yeah, yeah. I'm still here. That just uh, okay. dropped out on me. Um, so, Paul, how about um, as we as we finish up here, using the the janky one, um, as we finish up, we talked about the the motivation and the memento mori kind of 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 the Stoics that they they motivate themselves. Uh, kind of like in the in the gladiator esque way, you know what you do in this life echoes in eternity. Though you're not really going to be there all that much. Um, what's the motivation? How do we? Uh, how are we going to supplant that motivation of the scarcity of life, the finite, the finitude of life being the motivation? Um, what's the the Christian reply? Like how? Why are we motivated to do anything uh, if yeah. we're just going to live forever? Yeah, I mean, I would say that there's something right about that intuition. Um, life is incredibly valuable this side of heaven. Why? Not because it's finite and scarce, but because all of it's a gift from God mm. anyhow, right? And so what do we do as creatures created in the image of God? Well, everything we have is received from God, and then everything we have will be gifted back to God as the kings and queens, the priests and priestesses of this creation, that is men and women created in the image of God. That's part of our priestly role. And so I think um, what's right about that intuition is that all of its gift and it should be cherished, right? That's what should motivate us. It's not out of some um, zero sum game scarcity mentality that we yeah. cherish our lives. No, it's out of gratitude, right? This God who didn't need anything bubbled over to create this and gift us this world so that we could re-gift it back to him and praise and joy and worship him in the process. So that's, I guess, where I come back to is just what is, you know, look at why did, God created in, in the first place. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And how do we locate our life in that story such that we take up our place and, and um, find our joy and delight in that story? Man, amen, amen. When I'm feeling more, uh, when I got the wrestler mentality going on a little bit more, when I'm competing and stuff, it's also, I, I think, um, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things the glory yeah. of God, he knows when I'm sandbagging even if I can fool my coaches, even if I can try and fool myself, like he knows and he made me do something. He knows what he wants me to do. He knows that he wants me to be a witness and whatever it is. There's also that motivation, not of like the, uh, what, what the sort of Damocles or anything like that. It's not just it's this, this fear hanging over me, but it's that the Lord who made me knows and he gifted me, like you said, with these abilities, he knows what I'm, he knows what I can do and he's made me to do stuff and he's blessed me to do that. And so the motivation is uh, oftentimes like, let's see how far I can take this and let's, let's have fun doing it because God made me mm-hmm. to do these kind of things. He didn't make me to do everything. I'm, I'm not the best at math. I'm probably not going to glorify God by doing math today. Um, but I can do the other things that he made me and I'm going to enjoy it. So there's, there's the joy as well as the duty as well as the, yeah, the existential of like, I want to grow in areas. Maybe I should do some math to, to grow a little bit today, but I don't know. Yeah. Paul, man, this is, this is so good. I think that something I love about you is you 
don't have this sharp distinction between metaphysics and theology. So you're like, yeah, we're doing theology. We're doing metaphysics. I think that's so helpful because a lot of theologians, uh, they break out in hives when they start talking about philosophy. And it's like, well, dude, you're doing it. Some of you are very bad at it. Some of you are really good at it. And you don't need to be, whatever it is, uh, you don't need to be uh, upset about philosophy. It's That's what we're doing. We're doing ontology. We're talking about the soul. We're, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, what you bring to the table there and you jump back and forth because it should be like that. And then also the cultural apologetic stuff, man, you've, you've carved out that uh, and, and maybe uh, people want to, Paul's the cultural apologetics guy. Yeah. He's also a metaphysician. He's also others like he's, he's more than that. But because of that, you do have your pulse on the culture. And uh, I'm just so glad that, that you took up this, um, this argument and these arguments, because this is something I wrestle with all the time, man. And, and, my student athletes, the guys I disciple are going to listen to this and be blessed by it. So thank you for that, man. Uh, where can people uh, find more about this? Yeah. Thanks Parker. It's always good to be with you. Um, yeah. I, the, I think you were, you got interested in talking to me about this because I have my own season five of the Udo podcast where the whole season um, is on the question of, the meaning of life in a disenchanted world. So if you go to twotasksinstitute.org, you can see all the show notes for actually any of our seasons of podcasts, or you could just find us on iTunes or Spotify. It's called the Udo podcast. And then just, you know, find me on social media. I'm around. Uh, People can find my stuff that way. Awesome. Um, And then we've been talking about this for a while, but, uh, and I still can't remember the name. Is it 11 stones? Is it nine stones? Yeah, it's 11 stones. Yes. So I just right, finished. Right. Uh, last week, I turned into the publisher the, a sequel to the Cultural Apologetics book. And I'm really, really excited about it um, and actually how it turned out. Um, it's not a book about cultural apologetics. It's actually a work of cultural apologetics where it's written for non-believers. Um, just showing 11 features of the world that point to the divine. And so chapters on the universe, life, species, humans, meaning, morality, happiness, love, religion, beauty, and pain. Those are the 11 features. And it was just a wonderful blending of reason and imagination and, um, you know, ideas and image that as we take the readers on a journey. So I I hope that um, God will use that in a significant way when it comes out in a year. So that's how these things work. I'm, yeah, I know, man. I'm so excited for it because I I was there at the beginning when I think we, when right. we first started working at it and we were yep. talking through these ideas. So I've been thinking about this stuff a lot. So um, you got to come back on. We'll talk about that as well. That's but uh, for now, man, I, I guess I'll see you in class in like yeah. uh, a couple days. Two or, weeks. Yeah, two Look weeks. Look forward to seeing you there. Awesome, man. Um, Bless you, Parker. Yeah. All right. That's going to have to do it for us, folks. This has been Parker's Pensies. And as always, all glory to God.